0: Our message today, uh, we have a treat um, for our message today. Uh, Scott Logan's going to be sharing with us. And if you haven't met Scott yet, um, you're about to. Uh, Scott's been with us for about a year, and um, he's spent some time in the pulpit before, but not at this church. This is his first time here at this church. He's been uh, on staff at other congregations, and uh, he and Lindsay and their family joined us about a year ago And uh, we don't know exactly where Scott's uh, path is headed. We know he's called to ministry, and on Tuesday he'll be starting the licensing process with Church of the Brethren, which should move pretty quickly because Scott's already uh, pretty well educated uh, in uh, ministry training. So we're looking forward to having Scott share with us this morning. And uh, I'm going to call him up, and then we're going to pray over him and let God speak through him. Oh, thank you. Yeah, kids, see ya. <laughs> Sorry. It's been a busy morning, yeah. Alright, join me for prayer. God, we thank you for your service, Scott, and uh, we all are, have gifts. You say that you, you uh, disperse your gifts among uh, mankind and, and among your church, and so we appreciate the fact that you give your gifts and you give them freely, and then we get to choose what to do with them. And I thank you that this morning, uh, Scott's able to use his gifts to minister to us. I ask God that uh, His gifts would help in this moment as He uh, uses His gifts to teach us the Scripture, that it would unlock in us, God, the ability to use ours as well. As we stare at You, and as we watch You, because uh, in this season of Lent, as we've been watching You, we grow more and more, uh, uh, we grow more and more impressed. Every scene that unfolds in front of us. And so we ask that as, uh, as Scott walks us through uh, this uh, part of the book of Mark that we would just be blessed by watching you do your work and that uh, you would do your work through Scott right now. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.
1: All right, go ahead and open your, uh, your Bibles to Mark 9 if you have them. Mark 9. We'll sort of be doing a little bit of a survey through Mark 9 and Mark 10 this morning. Uh, a couple of the different stories in there. If you were in the first service, this joke would be old on you, but I told him, um, since I was the intern, I felt like I should be checking to see if there was any, like, stickers or something on my back or a kick-me sign, you know, as, like, my initiation for preaching here the first time. My family used to do that. We used to, like, we, we loved bananas, we ate bananas all the time, and we used to try to take the little stickers and, like, put them on each other's back and see, like, who found out halfway through the day at school, you know, and the kids all laughed at my dad, you know, and uh, so we like to pull those kind of pranks and... I don't think Josh and Tim are past that, so <laughs> help, help me out if you, know, if you ever see anything like that. So this morning we're continuing our Lenten series on Jesus as an uncommon hero for us. And uh, the title of today's message is Jesus and His Unconventional Philosophy. Uh, we've, we've started out and we've looked at things like His unlikely beginnings and how he acts and, and who he is and how he interacts with people, his unparalleled authority, his unexpected decision-making, and his unprecedented calling. And we're taking a little bit of a break from, from sort of the hard uh, dosage of you know, teaching that comes real specific to our lives, and we're trying to, to, to relax from that and just look at Jesus, to behold him, There's a theme that runs through the book of John um, of beholding and believing. That when we truly look at Jesus, take a long, hard look at Him, and and if we see what is truly there, that's what compels us to believe in Jesus Christ. And so that's what I want you to do with me this morning. That you would behold, look at Jesus. And not only just to see Him, but we want to savor Him. You know, taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34 says. You know, it's easy... For us, um, if if you're familiar to church, to get caught up in in a system, right? It can become very casual for us. And we don't just want to learn stuff about Jesus. We want to learn Him. We want to learn His person. So part of what we're going to look at this morning is His philosophy. So first of all, let's just consider what philosophy means. A couple quick definitions. Philosophy. Any philosophy majors here, by the way, so I know what I'm accountable for? Oh, good. I have a buddy who's a philosophy major. He drives us all nuts because he's always breaking everything down and dissecting. And he insists that we do the same thing theologically, but he's annoying to be around. And um, this goes out to James if he ever hears this. And um, I've been accused of the same thing. But anyway, philosophy. uh, The study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, or existence. Another definition describes it this way. A set of views or theories of a particular philosopher. You You pick a name. And you study just with that guy, you know, his body of work. And the third definition is what we're going to sort of key in on this morning. A theory or attitude held by a person or organization that acts as a guiding principle for behavior. You know, a theory or attitude held by a person or organization that acts as a guiding principle for behavior. And that's what we're trying to find out from Jesus today, by looking at him. We want to see what is the guiding theory, what is the principle that Jesus, principles at times, that Jesus, Jesus operates from. And if we go back into Mark 8, where we're, we've come from, uh, we find an instance where Peter makes this great confession about Jesus. And he's on top of the world. I mean, he's got his theology exactly right. And in the next instance, he hears something from Jesus that he doesn't agree with. And he has the audacity, as we do at times, we probably just don't do it publicly, To say, no, no, that's not how it works. That's not how it's going to be, Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him and calls him what? Satan. Satan. I mean, the opposition that Peter offered to Jesus' will, which is subordinated to the will of the Father, was so strong at that point that it's likened back to the opposition that Jesus felt from Satan in the desert in the temptations. He said, that's how far off you are right now, Peter. You're like Satan to me. So, of course, that's devastating, right? We don't throw that term around. We don't, I don't think we call each other Satan. <laughs> don't do that. Um, but we do sometimes tell God His business, and we think we know what's going on, and we don't. And we need to look at what Jesus is doing here. He has an unconventional philosophy in the way He deals with people, and the way He does the Father's will. And He even says, primarily... That is his philosophy. He says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And elsewhere he, in chapter 14 of this book, he refers to the Father's will as being his desire. John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's all about this. And in Luke 2, even when he was 12 years old, he's at the temple. Mary and Joseph come and find him, and they go, what are you doing? And he's like, what, what? What else would I be doing? I'm doing my Father's will. I've got to be in his house. I'm doing his business. So that's primarily, that's the short answer of what Jesus' unconventional philosophy is, is. He's always doing the Father's will. He's not doing anybody else's will. And then we want to see how that plays out in a couple of scenarios this morning. You know, um, one, one of the saints, St. Saint Bonaventure, said to know much and taste nothing of what use is that. And, and we referred to that earlier. So we just want to take a moment and ask God to to be with us in our minds and our imaginations and our affections so that we can understand what the Word has for us. So join me in prayer. Father, we're thankful just to come and sit together and to study your Word, Lord. And we know that many do not have this privilege and we remember them and we sympathize with them. We ask that you would strengthen them with grace and with mercy as they face persecution as we sit here without it. Uh, We don't want to take lightly the blessing it is to come here. And I pray that we could just let go of our busy, hectic, hurried lives for a few moments and enjoy you. Enjoy seeing Jesus who loves us. Oh, how he loves us. We see this again and again in the way he deals with people. And Lord, we need to take on your unconventional philosophy of ministry. And so teach us from that today. and Give us your spirit in in full measure, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. So first we want to look at the, the familiar story of the transfiguration. Mark 9, starting in verse 2. The transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. And the Greek word is where we get our English word of metamorphosis. All right, he's changed right in front of them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them, even Clorox. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Peter, Peter's always a spokesman, okay, said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Uh, Let us put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. So here we have this incredible story of of a few privileged people who get to see Christ in his heavenly glory right in front of them. And Elijah and Moses are there. We don't know exactly what's going on. The, The text doesn't say... Something you know, pretty cool is happening. And Peter wants it to last. He wants to build shelters. He wants to set up camp. He wants to make this a weekend event. You know. And he feels like he ought to say something. You know, he's in awe. And so what does he say? Lord, let me build a shelter for you and Elijah and Moses. And Mark tells us actually like he had no idea what he was talking about. He just said something. And we do that a lot, don't we? And we, we, we rag on Peter a lot. And, you know, it's an easy thing to do, but we do that kind of stuff. Peter wants to know what's going on, but he doesn't really have a good sense of it. The bottom line is this. There's at least two things going on. God's making a really huge deal out of Jesus right now. He wants it to be very clear to his disciples that this is my son. He's speaking audibly from heaven. Where else have we seen that happen? In Scripture. In his baptism, in the first chapter. And in that case, he's speaking to Jesus. And now he's speaking to the disciples saying, this is my son. If there was ever any doubt of the messianic implications of Jesus, this is him. Listen to him, Peter. He said some stuff was going to happen and you said no and, and we regard you as Satan in opposition to our will. Listen up because he's going to say some crazy stuff and it's going to be unconventional and you're not going to like it but you need to hear it. So listen to him. And also Jesus does this thing where, at, Tim, Tim mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, He's always, tell, he's always doing incredible things for and to people and then he's telling them to keep it on the down low. And that's nuts. I mean, if we, if we had a, you know, some sort of manifestation, a visible manifestation of the Spirit today, you would want to tell somebody. If you see something awesome, you go and tell people about it. And Jesus goes, don't, don't tell anybody. And why? You know, as Tim reminded us, it's because he had certain things he wanted to accomplish and if it gets if all of his stuff gets loose ahead of time, he can't accomplish it because it's going to become chaos. It's going to be a meat market. People are going to be coming from all over the place just to, just to look at him and to watch the stuff he does but not to know him. And we find that through some of these scenarios. So, in, so in, the, uh, in the transfiguration, God is making a big deal of Jesus. And these guys are terrified. They don't know what to say. But they need to listen. And then in verses 14 through 29, we have the healing of a boy with an unclean spirit. And I'm just going to summarize for you instead of reading through all those scriptures. um, But you have them in front of you. 14 through 29. And Jesus comes in contact with someone who's faithless or unbelieving, whose belief is in doubt. A guy comes and he says, I want my son to be healed. And Jesus comes back with these three from the mount and he reconnects with his other disciples and he finds out that they could not cast out this demon. And he says, oh, faithless generation, how long must I stay with you? Must I put up with you? Because Jesus had given them a commission to do these kind of things. You know, we see that in 3.15, they're actually given the commission to cast out demons. And in six verse seven and 6.13, chapter 6, verse 13, we see them actually do it. So it's not that they're, you know, incapable of doing it. Uh, you know, they didn't have their mojo that day. They didn't in the sense that their faith was weak. Somehow or other, their faith was not tapped in to God for his power in that instance. And so they couldn't cast it out. And so this guy comes to Jesus and he says, If you can do anything, please have pity on me. And, you know, he doesn't know who he's talking to. And and Jesus goes, If? 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 All things are possible for the one who believes. And then the guy, he gets it. So he's looking at Jesus, he's listening, and he's paying attention. And he goes, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe the best way I know how, I believe. And then there's all kinds of conflicts in me where I don't get what you're doing. And I need you to help me with the, that unbelief, to make it belief. Those are the kind of prayers you know, we need to offer to God. Here's Jesus showing sympathy on a guy whose son is sick. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen anyone who's had a seizure or experienced one yourself. I have. And I can't remember what it was like, but my parents have told me it was one of the most terrifying moments of their lives. And here's this kid seizing all around, foaming at the mouth, and Jesus is ministering to this guy. Because Jesus doesn't need to solve the problem right there. He can solve it with a thought. He can calm the storm whenever he wanted to. He has a specific time when he's ready to do it. But he's trying to get in touch with this guy and trying to work faith in his life. And he does it. And he casts out the demon. And again, he does it. He sees a crowd coming. He does it quickly and he dismisses it. He has prerogatives he wants accomplished and he's not willing to compromise them. So here's what's unconventional in this case. Jesus is demonstrating compassion instead of demonstrating his power. And actually, he's demonstrating his power by his compassion, and the power is not compromised. But it seems that his disciples were more concerned about the demonstration of power than they were about the people. We'll see that again and again, Jesus' disciples missing, like, the main point of it. The main point is always the people with Jesus, not all the formulas and exactly how things work out. And he's going, no, you missed it. You missed it with the people. Jesus demonstrates his compassion and thereby demonstrates his power, but he is not just concerned with the show of power. He loves us, as we sang. He then foretells his death and resurrection a second time in chapter 9, verse 30 to 32. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. More, This is, okay, this is conventional for Jesus, but unconventional for the rest of us. Because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. After three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. What's one good reason you might be afraid to ask Jesus what he meant if you've been hanging around with Peter? (laughs) Okay? You've seen Peter get shut down. You know? I I get this impression that Peter was obviously a bold guy and loved to kind of give the answer. You all grew up with somebody like that in your class. How many of you were that person in your class? Okay, I confess, I mean, I would tend toward that. Um, But I always had more wisdom about it than Peter, right? Um, You know, I I didn't have a hard time sharing my opinion. And, and of course, like when no one else wanted to, it's like, that guy will say it, right? And I, I get this picture that the disciples are sort of out there And like whenever Jesus is asking something, all of a sudden Peter trips forward and they push him and they step back. Peter will tell you, right? Or like Peter, give us the answer. Or who said that? Who responded? That was Peter, you know. Um, They've seen Peter get reprimanded, and so Jesus tells them this stuff. And when they, sadly, you know, they don't trust him enough to talk to him about it. They're scared. They're confused. You know, they're not knowing that Jesus has compassion. All the compassion he's shown on all these other people, how much more for his disciples would he have if he'd asked them? But they're scared. They don't understand. And he keeps telling and predicting his death. And that stuff Tim will be playing out in the next couple of weeks that will come to you know, uh, establishment in the passion. And so Jesus is always showing compassion to people, even his disciples, especially them at times. And then he shows compassion to the weak and the vulnerable in chapter 10. Right before he talks about the, the rich young ruler, you know he says that you need to receive the children. And of course, they send the children away. And Jesus goes, no, what are you doing? You don't send the children away. Let them come to me. And he had just told them in, in a previous story, whoever receives a child in my name receives me. And if you don't receive them in my name, you don't receive me. And the people who are closest to him aren't listening. Remember the transfiguration. This is my son. Listen to him. Have you ever done that? Jesus says, here's exactly what I want you to do. And you're like, right, right. Jesus doesn't want to be bothered right now. He doesn't have time for you. And he's going, you're not listening. You know, we can do that a lot in church. We're like, I got it memorized. I got it figured out. I've been to church for 33 years. Uh, I I could say it all back and forward. And sometimes Jesus is just going, shut your mouth and listen. And God's always doing that through the preaching of His Word. Whenever the Word's preached, it's like the light is being shined on Jesus. And we need to listen up. And we need to pay attention. We need to reevaluate the stuff in our lives that we're just doing on autopilot. But in, in contrast to his care for the children, he then comes to this young ruler. Who, of course, wants to know what he can do to secure eternal life. And Jesus says, keep the law. And he says, I have. And he goes, okay, then do this one last thing. Um, sell all you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And he went away sad. Why? He had to sell everything. He had to, he had to get rid of it because he had a lot of stuff. See, if he didn't have much, Jesus wouldn't have said that to him because that wasn't his point of need. And we find this unconventional philosophy that... Jesus says, if you want to win, you've got to lose. And if you want riches in life, you've got to give away your actual riches. You have to become poor. In this guy's case, this is what he had to do because he knew this is what this guy was unwilling to do. And Jesus himself, Hebrews tells us, is the actual reward. That if we come to God, we come to God for him, not for the stuff he gives us. You know, I think about that song we always sing, we don't want blessings, we want you. And this ruler came and he wanted the blessing and he wanted to know how he could secure it. And Jesus is like, you're missing it. It's right in front of you and you don't have to do anything except demonstrate to me that you want me more than the stuff you have. We find that Jesus says, if you want to be wealthy, you have to become poor. Jesus foretells his death a third time then. And then here comes on the tail of this a crazy request of James and John. They come up to him. They're they're with Jesus all this time. They're with him on the mountain. They see him like no one else has ever seen him. And you're thinking they'll probably be pretty humbled by that. I don't know that I'm like treating Jesus the same way if he's been glowing in front of me. Uh, Like no other thing has ever been that white in the world. And they still have the audacity to be like, Yeah, yeah, get that part about the ritual young ruler, giving up, sacrificing. By the way, Jesus, can you do me a favor? Can you let us sit on your right and left hand? That would be awesome. It's like, are you kidding me? You're going to come up to Jesus, who's trying to demonstrate again and again that people are what's at stake, and it's always other people. And you're going to say, give me me the seat at the right and the left side. And um, what Jesus said to them is astonishing, of course. He says... Uh, he asks them what he wants them to do, and they they give the request. He says, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And what do they say? Yeah, what are they supposed to say? No. (laughs) Who can drink the cup of the Father's wrath except Jesus? He's been transfigured. He's foretelling his death, burial, and resurrection to them. He keeps letting them in on the secret. Crazy, tragic, horrific stuff is going to happen to the Son of Man. And he says, you can share in that. And they have the, I don't even know if it's audacity as much as idiocy, right? And again, I share with them because I probably would have said the same thing. How do I know? Yes, we can bear this. And he goes, okay. Um, (laughs) Jesus says to him, okay, you will. See, they, they think it's just like, we're just rolling with Jesus. We're good. We stay in step with you. Can you bear the cup? Yes, we can. He goes, and that's, that's the scary part. And he goes, You actually will. You're going to follow me on the path of the cross. And the majority of his disciples paid for it with their lives. Like, they don't know what he's talking about, about his own death. They certainly don't know. They're not getting the picture that he's calling them to a life of death in following Jesus. And they're just sitting there going, We can do whatever you do, Jesus. We're good. And Jesus is going, you're not listening. You don't get it. Yesterday was the anniversary of the death of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian and martyr who was hanged naked at the Flossenburg concentration camp in 1945, just days before the Allied liberation. If you've never read his book, The Cost of Discipleship, you you should. It's great. And he says this one thing, in their, uh, this one little short phrase, and, and Bonhoeffer got it. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It's you know, him asked in his sermon on authority, who has the kind of authority that they could just come up to you and go, hey, follow me, and just point out ten people in here and just walk out the door and they're going to follow him. And, I mean, you know, if we tried it, we'd laugh at whoever would do it because nobody's buying that. And yet, when Jesus comes, he comes up to people and he says, hey, come after me and when you come, you're going to die. That's unconventional, right? When we go around raising funds for things, and we go around you know, with our Boy Scout cookies and stuff like that, we don't knock on the door and go, hey, will you buy a box of cookies and die? <laughs> I mean, will you support me, even if it means your death? <laughs> Slam. Slam. Curse. Uh, you know, mocking. No. And yet, this is what Jesus says to them. He says you will bear this cross. And I can't give you what you're asking for. It's not mine to give. So whoever wants greatness, we find, must serve. And whoever wants prominence, must become a slave. In fact, if you actually want to be wealthy, you have to embrace the ideal that the prince of life, as Acts calls Jesus, has to be made a pauper for you in order that you can be made rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. You need to write that verse down, not because I'm saying it, because it's just an awesome verse that summarizes the gospel and will always give you hope in any scenario in your life. Second Corinthians eight nine. For you know the grace, the kindness, the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich. Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, would become rich. That's what the rich young ruler didn't understand. And his disciples didn't understand it. And then we have blind Bartimaeus. The guy who we think probably understands the least. I mean, he doesn't even have all of his senses, his faculties about him. You know what's what's great about Jesus' unconventional wisdom is it's made for like, really poor, pathetic, broken down people. And when I say that, I'm not talking about him as if I'm not like him. And if you are hearing these people as people other than you, you're missing it too. Because it's, it's the blind guy who's never met Jesus, it's the guy coming for healing, and it's his disciples. And some of us are his disciples, and we hang out with them all the time, and we miss stuff again and again. So it's not a word not for us. And blind Bartimaeus cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowds go, shut up, Bartimaeus. This is Jesus. He doesn't have time for you. And they they chastise him. Be quiet. And and here's what's cool about Bartimaeus. I mean, this guy's disabled in society, and he just doesn't care. He doesn't care what these people think. And he cries out all the louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears him. And he turns. And he says, call him. And suddenly, as crowds are wont to do, fickle crowds, maybe they're Philly crowds, cheer up, Barnabas! Jesus wants to talk to you. And they get on his side and they're all pumped up. And if you're like me, I'm thinking Barnabas is going, get out of my face. This is about me and Jesus. He didn't even care about me five minutes ago. And he goes to Jesus. I'm assuming he's helped, but he finds his way to Jesus. And he says, what do you want from me? And he says, Rabbi, I want my sight. I want to see. He obviously already knew stuff about Jesus where he believed, but he wants to see him face to face. And there is a spiritual picture of understanding there that when we see Jesus, we get it. When we finally do. And that's something only the Spirit can do for us. Nobody can decide, I'm going to go see Jesus and figure out everything about him. It's a gift that's given. In the same way Jesus had to grant this guy his eyesight, he has to grant us spiritual eyes to see him. And he says, go your way, your faith has healed you. Now listen to what he does. Unlike the nine of the ten lepers we know of, unlike some in these stories, he received his sight and he followed Jesus along the road. Bartimaeus got it. He got it if you look at these two stories, the disciples are going, well, if it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom, good grief, who can? Because riches were a sign of God's blessing in their estimation. If anyone reads these two stories and says, who do you want to sign up to be? The rich rich guy or blind Bartimaeus? Physically, everyone picks the rich guy. And unconventional wisdom would tell us you'd rather be blind. Because then you'll have the faith to cry out for mercy and be given your sight. He followed Jesus along the road, and so should we. So must we follow Jesus in His unconventional wisdom when it doesn't make sense to us, when it hurts and it's confusing and it's absurd, and He's doing great stuff and not telling us what it is. We follow Him. In contrast to the self-serving, self-sovereign, glamorous spiritualities of our day, ours is a pedestrian way. Literally pedestrian. We put one foot in front of the other as we follow Jesus. And in order to know who He is, where He is going, and how to walk in His steps, we reach for a book. The book. And we read it. And when we do, we find an unconventional philosophy that tells us that if you want to be first, you must be last. If you want to be great, you must serve. If you want treasure and riches, you must become poor. And if you want to save your life, you must lose it. And lose it to the only one who can save it. Jesus.